Hello, and welcome to Partially Redacted, a podcast where we discuss privacy and security and engineering-related topics. I'm your host, Sean Falker, and today I'm joined by Piper Keys, engineering lead at Skyflow, and we'll be talking about building privacy-preserving data pipelines. Piper, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Yes, thanks for, for being here. Uh, why don't we start by having you introduce yourself? Who are you? You know, What's your educational background, work history? How did you end up where you are today? Yeah, so um, as you said, I'm Piper. Um, I had a somewhat uh, non-traditional path to becoming a software engineer. Um, all of my educational background is actually in neuroscience um, or like biopsychology, but, you know, basically neuroscience. And um, yeah, I, I did uh, my PhD in neuroscience um, in the Bay Area at Stanford and pretty quickly realized that that was not the uh, the career I wanted to pursue. Um, I spent probably about like 90% of my time collecting data and like 10% of my time actually thinking about the data, designing experiments, doing like the critical thinking that I actually enjoy. And so while I was there, uh, a bunch of people recommended to me, hey, you should like check out CS. You might really like it. And so I did that and took a bunch of... Um, like of like the core CS classes, I guess that's part of the degree at Stanford and like a couple upper level classes and um, kind of decided like this scratches the same itch as what I liked about, you know, thinking about neuroscience, which is problem solving, um, designing in, you know, neuroscience, it was experiments, but in CS it's like designing architecture and systems. Um, and yeah, so, so after I finished my PhD, which I mostly did because I could take these classes for free and kind of prepare myself to to transition over. Um, I joined a startup uh, that it was called Open Lattice. It um, I think got bought at some point, but I worked there uh, as an intern and then as a software engineer for maybe like a year, and then um, came to work at Skyflow originally because I really wanted to learn the like tech stack that we use here um like docker go kubernetes those were all um technologies that I thought were valuable skill sets to have and at the time I, di I didn't really think that much about the the product <laughs> I just I wanted to learn the technologies but as I have um been here longer it's become more and more clear like how essential the the um like platform we are providing is in this day and age, both for like, you know, the betterment of people as well as the need for it based on kind of all of the, all of the um, legislation around data privacy. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of how I ended up here. And then I've been at Skyflow for almost three years now. So um, hard switch <laughs> from, from biological sciences into computer sciences uh, for me. How many people were at Skyflow when you joined? Three years, because companies only, only was, you know, formed in 2019, so. Yeah, I think it was, like, less than 20 at the time. Um, it was primarily engineers, and, like, you know, Anshu was obviously here. Um, we had a CTO at the time, and, like, a couple other, like, you know, administrative um, roles, and then, like, maybe, like, 10 engineers. It was very small, <laughs> I think. I think they were about to get Series A or like had just gotten Series A. Listen, and then 
what was your what was the original goal with doing uh, you know a PhD in, in neuroscience? Were you hoping to for a career in research or, or to become a professor or something right now? Yeah, I think that was kind of the thought when I was um, like a like a you know bachelor's student, um, just like taking the neuroscience classes and and working in a in a lab. Um, and I just I mean I still love thinking about neuroscience. It's I still probably it's my favorite like thing to think about. Um, but basically what I found was that the, the job of like doing neuroscience research was very different from taking classes in neuroscience where you just spend a lot more time moving mice around and like creating solutions and stuff than actually like thinking. Um, so yeah, so I, I initially thought like, oh, I'll go be a professor and then kind of realized it, I wasn't really enjoying my day to day, you know? Yeah, I, I kind of went through a similar um, realization as well, where I was doing essentially a postdoc in 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 same department as you, but in bioinformatics at Stanford, and and yeah. and I realized like I don't know that this is the the type of work that I was doing uh, was ultimately what I really wanted to do because the amount of work that I was doing that I really enjoyed was only you know t that ten to fifteen percent, and I actually yeah. like kind of building stuff that people would actually use uh, a much more. Uh, so yep. that's that's kind of where I made that pivot. But were there, you know, skills essentially that you learned as like a researcher uh, in, you know, biology and neuroscience that are transferable to what you do now or sort of yeah. skills that you developed as an engineer? Yeah, absolutely. Because um, I what I always like to say to people who ask, like, what's it like to get a PhD is it's largely like a boot camp in critical thinking and um like pattern identification um because basically like when you're when you're doing an experiment you have you've like designed this set of um experiments that you're trying to prove some like overarching point and when you start collecting the data maybe the results are not what you expected and so you have to think what different components like of let's say you're studying the brain like components of this subsection of the brain could be leading to this result as opposed to what i thought I was going to find. And that's basically debugging. You know, you have to understand the components to understand the behavior. Um, and especially with neuroscience, I think studying the brain requires um, like thinking and switching quickly between thinking about like very high level concepts, like um, like systems, like this, this brain region is going to talk to this brain region, which is going to split its signal into like these downstream brain regions. But also you need to understand like the cell types in that brain region and what each of those individually does. And that is very similar to software where you need to be able to very quickly flip between here's the architecture and like the large scale of the of the feature or like the product I'm working on. And then but but immediately I'm writing this code. And so I need to understand what this piece does and how it will affect like the larger whole. Um, so I actually think it's extremely translatable <laughs> like if you're going to pick a PhD that's not CS and end up a software engineer, neuroscience works pretty well. Oh, yeah. It's like the, the, the unconventional, uh, path. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just do, you know, 10 years of school and not neuroscience and then take right. a couple of things in there. Uh, yeah. It's awesome. definitely not the most efficient path. <laughs> yeah. It's slightly more expensive path. Yes. So, so we're going to be, you know, we're just kind of, you know, pivoting a little bit into the the topic at hand today. We're, we're talking about 
you know, data analytics, data analytics pipelines, particularly, you know, essentially privacy preserving data analytics pipelines. But maybe before we get to that, it, starting just at the very basics, you know, what is a data analytics pipeline? Yeah, so I think that's a really big question. And um, I'll give kind of a high level answer of like my perspective on it. So I think it's generally uh, a workflow that starts by extracting data from, you know, it could be one source, could be many sources, and it's going to take that data in, transform it, process it, perform analytics, whatever your specific use case is, and then potentially export that data to, again, one or many sources. So it can be, you know, a, a one-to-one transformation. It could be a many-to-one one to many, many to many. There's there's a lot of um, flexibility on like the the I/O of the pipeline, but I think the the primary um, feature is that data is going to be pulled in, transformed, and insights are going to be drawn from that data. And then, what are the kind of like tools that typically get used by um, you know companies that are building these types of uh, pipelines? Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on this specific use case because um, there's maybe there's like stream you need with a streaming use case where data is going to be coming regularly like maybe through like a like a kafka queue or something um i'm less familiar with those tools but um in the in the case of like batch processing um at least from my experience you need some kind of like orchestration tool um which we have we've landed on airflow as that um but you could use something like uh really depends on the use cases, <laughs> but we, we also looked into like Argo CD is like a, a container orchestration tool, but you need some kind of orchestrator that will allow you to, to um, maintain like atomicity, which is basically performing like one step to completion before moving on to the next step. Um, and then uh, item potency, which is basically ensuring that the outcome is the same every time from that step. Um, so some kind of orchestration framework or tool that allows you to be confident that you're maintaining those two um, features of your your pipeline. And then, you know, I think a lot of people, again, depends on the use case, a lot of people use Python um, for, for data analytics because it's very good with, like, handling matrices, especially if you're using ML. Python has a lot of good tools for that. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, it, it, it depends on the use case, <laughs> I guess, is, is the 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 um true answer yeah right yeah and the modern data stack also consists of, there's just like so many tools in the tool chain now yeah. that uh you know do a variety of different things that like if you need an orchestration tool there's probably you know at least dozens you know, 10, 10 yeah. 20 of those that you could make your choice yeah. from and then you know going a step further what's it mean to like actually build like a privacy preserving data pipeline yeah so that i think um it's it, it, it includes a lot of the same like features of a normal data pipeline. But I think that the the key is that keeping the sensitive data that needs to remain protected, keeping that like uh, feature of the pipeline at like the forefront of every design decision you make is absolutely essential. Because once once you start processing data, it moves a lot of different places. You know, it, it may be coming in from multiple sources, maybe getting sent to third party sources or vendors to do some sort of validation. Like maybe you wanna, maybe you're processing credit card data 
and you only want to look at credit cards that are currently valid or active, maybe you send that up to some credit card validator service and then down the line, like send it to one or many um, like data syncs. If you do not feel confident <laughs> that you are protecting the sensitive data, like the CVVs and, and whatnot that fall under uh, PCI, it will be nearly impossible to track all that stuff down once it's gone through the pipeline. So I think the primary thing is you have to build the pipeline with privacy preservation in every single design choice you make. And so that makes a lot of sense. Like if you're, especially like in the example you're talking about where if you're dealing with like credit card information, you know, clearly you don't want that ending up in the clear somewhere. And if you do that, you'll be violating PCI DSS plus, yeah. like, you know, potentially compromising your, your customer's information and so on. But mm -hmm. what, you know, what are sort of the, uh, the techniques or strategies as, uh, an organization would use from an engineering perspective to make sure that that kind of thing doesn't actually happen. Like it doesn't end up in a log file somewhere or something like that. Oh yeah. Log files. Um, part of it is being a thoughtful engineer, I think, and thinking about what you're logging. Um, but I would say, you know, I would argue that pushing, managing that sensitive data as far like forward in the process, that is a good pattern to follow. So before you start doing any sort of like analysis on the data, you should use some mechanism of obfuscating the sensitive data before sending it further down the pipeline. Um, that I would say is probably the most important thing um, from like when you're designing like the steps of your pipeline, like step one, make sure that we're not sending anybody's data now where it's not supposed to go in plain text. Um, and yeah, I mean like the tools that are available, like I know that there are some ML based de-identification tools. Those, um, like I, I've never used them. My, my main, um, I guess the, the thing that like sticks in the back of my head, cause we've talked about using those is that like sort of by definition, um, like deep learning algorithms cannot be a hundred percent accurate. It's if they, like, if you're, if your algorithm or like your neural net is working at a hundred percent, uh, accuracy on your training data, it's probably overfit. At least that is what I learned in like the class that I took. So, um, so I think that's like a good auxiliary tool. Like that can be part of the pipeline, but it's also important to like design your data, like your data warehouse well to begin with. So you know where the sensitive data lives. Um, right. yeah. I don't know if that really answers your question or if I went on a tangent, <laughs> but yeah, well, so, I mean, I think you make a very good point about sort of knowing where the data lives, because I think one of the big challenges, of course, any company can run into, especially when they're handling sensitive data on one of these like big analytics pipelines, is that it simply can end up in a lot of different places and you lose track over time of like, you know, what and where you're storing that information. And if you don't know what you're storing and where it is, yeah. it's pretty hard to know that's secure or whether you're, you're uh, you know, in violation of some sort of compliance regulation. Right. You mentioned a couple of things though in there around like obfuscation and de-identification. So what what does that you know, what does it mean essentially to de-identify data and how does that work? Yeah, so de-identification, I think it can be done a number of different ways, but it basically means that, you know, if somebody were looking at the plain text data, they would not be able to use that to actually identify a person. 
Um, and there's a lot of strategies you can use. I think common ones are, you know, you can redact that data, you can mask it. So only, you know, like with a social security number, you only see like the last four digits or something like that. Um, or you could tokenize it. And I think that tokenization is is particular, particularly useful because if you ever need to re-identify the data later, you have essentially like a key that you can send to whoever maintains that token to get the actual value back. And maybe, you know, maybe your like business case can't actually look at that, but maybe you're interacting with some, you know, PCI compliant third party that needs that information to perform whatever, you know, task you need them to perform. Um, so yeah, I would, I think redaction masking tokenization are kind of the, the big um, common like ways to de-identify or obfuscate uh, sensitive data. Right. And you know, you mentioned that the the idea of re-identifying the, the the person. So, you know, if we take a specific example going back to this like, you know, credit card scenario, maybe we're doing some sort of machine learning on that on transactional data, but we yeah. want to be able to send some portion of it on to, I don't know, some third party service that's gonna be able to detect whether uh, I don't know, fraud is happening on that person. Then we might want to re identify that user in order right. to tell them that something's happening to them, but not necessarily expose our systems to who that user is. So something like right. tokenization would allow you to facilitate something like that. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it, so we, we've been talking a lot about this, uh, you know, made up scenario of the, of the credit card transaction, but are there, <laughs> what, what are some other examples of like use cases where if this idea that engineers need to be really thoughtful about the handling of that data and be thinking about privacy, have privacy essentially in mind from the get-go when it comes yeah. to building these types of uh, data pipelines. Yeah, so um, there's one thing, like there's one use case that I've thought of a lot recently, um, which is essentially like uh, like ML-based pipelines for for advertisements in like apps like Instagram and things like that. Um, and what, what scares me is kind of what I mentioned before about ML is like, it's, it is by definition like black boxy. So you don't really know how that, that um, neural net or whatever it is came to make the decisions it's making. And if you're not like confident that the data that you're feeding into this pipeline are, are accurately de-identified, it's going to be very hard to understand where that information went you know um so so that's just something i've been thinking about a lot is you know like big big companies i don't know if it's if it's a faux pas to like use names <laughs> but it's like you know facebook has i there was an article that i saw i think it was like posted in our in our slack like read stuff channel that there was an engineer from facebook who said there is literally no way that we can track down all the sensitive data that we have there's there's no path to follow um, and I think a lot of the reason they collect all this data is to, is to sell ads because that's a, a big, you know, revenue generator. Um, those are the things that really, that really scare me is, is, uh, like creating essentially like an idea of a person to like sell them more stuff and like selling that ID to other companies that are going to advertise to them. It very quickly, your personal information can get spread, um, it's it's like you know opening a floodgate <laughs> basically so um so yeah that's that's a specific use case where i think that 
ahead of time and sure, I mean, it may be too late for some for some databases. I don't know. But ahead of time, if you're building something new, ahead of time, making sure that if you're going to be sharing this information with other um, companies, with other, like you're going to be passing it to somebody else's data warehouse, it's out of your hands at that point. So you have to be very intentional about ensuring that nothing gets sent down the line that you can't get back, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, you know, the, the former head of security at, at Twitter had come out last year and said a similar thing about, about Twitter, essentially that they, you know, they, they essentially have no idea where the, the user data is. And I think, yeah. you know, Facebook and, and, and Twitter get a lot of like, uh, heat for, for these types of things. But the reality is tons and tons of companies right. have, have this problem. Like they're kind of like easy yeah. targets for this, but tons of yeah. companies, I think that have developed over the last 20 years when we weren't really asking ourselves about, you know, why are we collecting this information? What are we actually doing? We were just like building these like huge systems that are like scaled globally. You know, we weren't worrying about the backups of our database having PII in them or like right. uh, the want files. You know, we we uh, uh, log an exception and it has some user information in it. Uh, we weren't really thinking about those things at that level. And now it's really hard to retroactively, you know, fix those problems, I think. Right. Yeah. I don't know if this is inappropriate to say on on this podcast, but it, it falls under the like fuck around and find out where like when Bing Data became a thing, everybody was just collecting as much as they could. And now we're finding out <laughs> that like there are a lot of uh, dangerous implications based on that kind of um, I don't know if reckless is the right word, but like not very thoughtful um, behavior. And yeah, I think it's it's all over the place. Like um, probably almost any company that collects some kind of user data has leaked some of it somewhere it shouldn't it shouldn't have gone. Um, so yeah, yeah, on on the same page, I'm path pat for sure. Yeah. So in, in the case though, where a company essentially is you know thinking about this from from the get go, and they're doing taking the proper steps to de-identify data, like maybe they're using some sort of you know tokenization process, and they they're using other, you know, ways of essentially controlling who can see that data, what data they're storing, what they're passing downstream. How does analytics work in that scenario? Because, you know, presumably these companies originally were storing this data in their data warehouse so that they can run sort of these analytical workloads directly against the, right. the actual data. But in the case where we're, you know, we're, we're taking the right steps to make it privacy preserving, how do we actually run analytics over essentially the de-identified data in that case? Yeah, I mean, I think that if if you have designed it well, it should it should work exactly the same because you know, uh, ostensibly, I suppose the analytics you're trying to draw are like large scale patterns and not about specific people. And so, I think especially if you are using um, like format preserving tokens, the data you're running your analysis on to any like human looks like real data. So you're not even sacrificing um, like the the data format. Like maybe that's important to your analytics. It very well might be. Um, you'll just have like a fake, you know, SSN instead of somebody's actual SSN. So as long as your analytics is not trying to, um, you know, glean anything about any particular um, piece of information, which I, I can't really think maybe there are examples, but I can't think of one where like that's that's the outcome you're looking for. Generally, you're looking for like patterns um, emerging from like 
a large set of data. So it should it should work exact exactly the same. Um, from from my perspective, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I guess if you're if you're looking for things like uh, you're trying to aggregate people by geographic information, like city, state, country, you know, technically you don't really need to know. Uh, like have the actual city name in there versus some right. sort of like you know random string or something like that. As long as the input of like San Francisco generates the same random string every time, it's right. essentially de-identified. But from an analytics or machine learning perspective, like the machine doesn't care that it's you know ABC right. one two three versus you know San Francisco written out. Yeah, yeah, right. absolutely. And then you mentioned this idea of like format preserving. So um, I take it in that case, what's happening is. You could take something like a phone number and you're basically you're producing something that still looks like a phone number, but it's not an actual original phone number. Is that yep, right? Exactly. What are, you know, some of the the big challenges in you know building uh a pipeline like this that, that does work to essentially preserve uh, uh privacy? Hey there, it's Sean, host of Partially Redacted. You probably guessed that since at this point in the interview, you probably recognize my voice. I've been told for years that I have a face for podcasting, but no one has mentioned whether I have a voice for podcasting, so sorry about that. Hopefully, the awesome guest makes up for it. Anyway, if you're enjoying this episode, please support the show by subscribing and telling your friends. You can also join Partially Adapted community at skyflow.com slash community. Okay, that's enough for me. Back to the show. Yeah, so I think that um, what we have found, because we've, we've been building one, um, is when you're when you're trying to build something this big and complex it's very easy to get um kind of tunnel vision on like the use cases you're currently addressing and to some extent you have to right because you have to address those use cases but building flexibility into that pipeline i think is extremely important um which is why you know i mentioned earlier that we like our strategy is basically like an orchestration framework that spins up uh, a Kubernetes pod that does some like maybe not bite size but can like containerized piece of work that is independent of the other ones um and that allows us for the flexibility of of um like essentially changing the graph so maybe in some cases we need an extra step like maybe maybe we need to do some like data decryption or encryption in some cases and not in others um that's a level of flexibility we want to support because the different people using the pipeline may have different um different requirements um that and then i think that uh one of the one of the hardest things that we have come across maybe not hard but just time consuming is that um you know sec the security that that we are we are striving for starts at like the architecture level and goes all the way down to the code and designing secure architecture is just inherently more complex than than just designing some architecture that works. Uh, we have to think a lot about where where are the data that we are touching, where are they actually being processed, like where are they being read into memory? Is that a, is that a secure environment? Um, yeah, so it's just there's a lot more thought and a lot more um, effort that has to be made. I think from you know our infrastructure team has been very busy helping us <laughs> because there's a lot of there's a lot of work on on their side, um, yeah. But but high level is that if you're adding the complexity of of security into your designs, it you need to be much more um, careful. You need to think things through from multiple different angles, 
Um, and I think it just takes longer. Yeah. And I think it's, it's, you know, I, you know, one of the things you mentioned at the beginning there was this idea that, of, of flexibility. And I, I think it's probably one of the big challenges that a company that is trying to develop this completely on their own is going to run into where, you know, yeah. maybe they can come up with a bespoke solution for their particular like use case today, but is that going to sort of be too brittle and too right. flexible a year from now when they encounter like another use case versus if you do go with some sort of vendor solution, then the vendor's probably seen like, you know, hundreds of different use cases. So they're gonna have something that's like more flexible and essentially that's that their job is to be thinking about this particular problem. Yep, exactly. So going back to you know, one of the use cases we kind of like talked about at the very beginning, this idea of like having like customer transactional data, like let's say it's like credit card data from Visa. Mm -hmm. So like using the example of like, like Skyflow's like pipeline support, uh, starting to focus a little bit more on, on how Skyflow does this. How can you walk me through essentially like how does someone like ingest data from say like Visa's transactional data into the weight of their warehouse without having to essentially build a bunch of PCI compliant infrastructure. Yeah, so I think that why that why we are building this tool is because I think a lot of people have a use case that's exactly that or very similar to that. And so our our privacy data vault is a, a really like convenient backend to use for de-identification of data while still like maintaining the usability of that data. So let's say you have you have your data that's coming from Visa. Maybe they pushed it to some, I don't know, like S3 bucket or like FF, uh, SFTP server or like some some sort of like data warehouse. Um, our, like the pipeline we are building can pull that data in for you. And if you provide us essentially like based on the data that we're pulling in for each like source field in that data, where do you want it to go in your vault? We can pull all of it in write it into your vault, tokenize, like, let's say you want that, um, you need that data to go somewhere else, like in into your own backend. Um, we can take that data, write it into the vault, generate tokens for every data point, replace the, the sensitive data with those tokens, and then send that along to your warehouse. Um, so then you don't, your, your pipeline can begin from your warehouse. Um, and if you ever need to, let's say like re-identify the data and send it back to Visa or to, you know, whomever for whatever reason, you can just, you know, detokenize through our detokenization API. And um and yeah, you have you have the data you need right there. Okay, so just to 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 kind of walk through that explanation. So essentially what's happening is in this case, like Skyflow is is sitting at the head of, like basically before a company's pipeline even starts they're sitting at the head of that taking yeah. in this sensitive data in a secure way uh and and then within the vault environment the secure environment of the vault de-identifying any of the information that needs to be de-identified de and producing essentially like a clean version of the data on the other end and then yeah. essentially the company's etl pipeline or whatever it's going to be can operate as as usual without yeah. being worried about any sort of uh um data security data privacy issues yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's, I think that makes it easier for the customer too, because then they don't have to think about it at all. They are, they don't have to worry about their own like PCI compliance. They can 
push that off to us and, and we can worry about it for them. Um, and their operations don't really have to change at all. You know, the, the pipelines that they are running for their own use cases can operate exactly the same. We've just done the step ahead of time to get rid of any um, sensitive data for them. Mm -hmm. Let's say, like, once the data is in the warehouse, so now we have, like, de-identified data in the warehouse, and let's say this is, like, clinical trial data or something like that. And, and then, then we need to form a clinical trial participant about some sort of issue, but we also want to maintain privacy in our, our systems. You, know, you alluded to the fact that we would be able to uh, get back to, essentially, the original participant. Can you kind of walk through, like, how, how would that operation perform or work? Yeah, so there's a number of ways that it, it could work, and it kind of depends, again, on on the use case. Um, but so the one one thing you could do is uh, Skyflow also has a um, concept of uh, uh, connections, right? So maybe you can hook up whatever, wherever you need to send that data. Like, let's say there's some API you have to hit that will eventually send an email to whomever it is that needs information you can um set up a connection to that to that endpoint and provide the tokens and the the connections feature will essentially take those tokens replace them with the actual data and then send that you know request onto the api um that's one thing that you could do you could also um i think with our functions <laughs> like if there wasn't like an out-of-the-box connection and you didn't want to make one you could also use our functions feature to do something very similar where you have the tokens, you provide those and the function will go and detokenize and then send, you know, send the email maybe directly. Maybe you want to directly send an email um, instead of using some third party email service. Um, yeah. So I think those are, those are two ways you could, you could do it. Yeah. So it sounds like there's a lot of options, but essentially the, the, the like takeaway is that the business is, is always going to be essentially op like doing work against these de-identified forms of the data, so they are protected. But it's by leveraging the vault as a uh, like secure environment, the vault kind of knows how to get back to the original values, perform whatever operation you need to do, but without exposing your system to that. Yeah, yeah. Basically, you can you can always just use the the fake data essentially to perform whatever operations you need to perform. The vault will will make sure that. When the when the real data is needed, we can get it. Mm -hmm. So we talked a little bit about like uh, you know transactional data from Visa or some other you know credit card type of data, cl clinical trial data. What are there other you know use cases that something like you know Skyfly's pipelines product would would enable? Yeah. So so we talked about what credit cards and what was the other one you said? Uh, clinical trials. Clinical trials. Yeah. I mean like. Pretty much, and I think that there are probably endless um, use cases that involve somebody's personal data, um, like med like medical. Obviously, like the 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 whole field has all sorts of information that that um, gets collected every time you see the doctor, every time you you know buy um, or like pick up a prescription from from a pharmacy. Like, there's there's so much information that. Um, is out there like on a person um that should be protected so if if like your use case involves any data that could be described as like hipaa compliant uh piece like uh under pci 
um really anything uh you could you could let's say you have a bunch of that data now you are unable to maintain it because you are not compliant for whatever that data type is um the the like the primary reason we made this pipeline was to enable people to move large amounts of data into the vault to like they'd be the fastest way to to remove your own um like liability um i don't know exactly all the laws that are coming out but there i'm i imagine there are some that are basically saying you have this this much time until you are considered like um out of compliance and will likely get fined um so yeah if 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 the if a customer's use case has any it touches any um like sensitive or like uh privileged data i suppose putting it through our pipeline to get it into the vault and then building your um like business logic to just have the extra step of take this token get the real value from the vault and then send it on to whoever needs it um yeah like any of those <laughs> any of those can can be yeah supported. i guess it's a very broad question i mean i think and generally, the the idea here is that uh, if you have any customer data that you're storing in your warehouse, your wake, or whatever your downstream systems are, then you're potentially like uh, you know putting yourself at risk from yeah. either from a compliance standpoint or just even from like a like a attack vector standpoint because you're yeah. having additional surface areas that someone could potentially attack. And especially when we talk about these like complex ETL pipelines that have a lot of different like components, then each of those components probably have logging systems. Like that data just can get up in a lot of uh, a lot of places, like we talked about at the beginning. So right. by only storing or or, or operating over de-identified data, you just kind of like de-risking that whole surface area, and you don't really have to worry about it. Yeah. And are there starting to kind of you know wrap up here beyond just the uh, you know data pipelines and some of the work that you're doing in Skyflow? Are there you know, future looking tools and technologies that you're particularly excited about in this space? Yeah. So, I mean, specifically the data pipeline space or just like in general? In general, like even, you know, data privacy, security space. Yeah. So I think that that's something that um, I'm, I'm super interested in, but in um, I'm also like have a healthy, uh, I don't know, skepticism, I guess, <laughs> about it. And, and I think it ties back into you know, having spent so much of my life studying neuroscience, um, the, like, uh, field of, like, brain-machine interfaces I find very, very interesting. But with the big caveat of, I think that the, um, the hype in the tech community about them is a little closer to sci-fi than it is to reality. And I think that, um, you know, like, at a very simple level, computers operate on like electrons right Ele like electricity decides the compute of that computer decisions are made based on electrons quantum computers i think make that a little more complicated but it's still electrons right um the brain is bioelectrochemical in how it processes information so that's two additional like vectors of compute essentially and i think that and that's just at like a base level, you know? So so I think that a lot of the talk around what I think is more, it's closer to like Black Mirror than, than our reality about like 
oh, we're going to be able to, like, replay our memories on a computer screen and that kind of stuff. Uh, I'm less interested in that. But I think that, you know, there was a lab when I was at Stanford. Um, I think it was the Chinoy lab. I don't exactly remember. But I remember seeing a talk from that lab where they had um, created a brain-machine interface of, like, a um, prosthetic arm, and a monkey could use that to, like, reach towards something. And that is amazing, right? Like, the implications of what that could do to help people is is incredible. But once it reached, it kind of lost control of the arm because in, like, a real arm, there's proprioceptive feedback going back to the brain, and the prosthetic limb could not... Uh, like emulate that and that's such a simple task you know like reaching for like a like a dot on a screen it's so simple but it is so difficult for a like computer to to do reading like uh input from a human or in this case it was a monkey but like a primate brain right um but that being said i still think that there there is a lot of uh good research being done in that space and i think it could potentially be very cool but it also, that <laughs> I think is is very relevant to data privacy, um, anything medical. You know, I think that, I mean, not that I, not that I'm an expert in that that field, but it definitely seems like the um, the medical industry is not as careful with um, user data as it should be, especially you know startups that are trying to move fast and get stuff done i think that stuff is often thought about second so as we like move tech further and further into um like the medical world i think that that is a a very um it's great because i think a lot of innovations come from it but it's also a little scary like a brain machine interface we don't know what kind of data they're collecting they could be collecting like signatures of your brain waves who knows if that could be like relevant later you know um to like identify i don't know like mental illness and then maybe you end up getting discrimination at a job because you have a brain signature of someone with like depression or i, I i'm not really sure but yeah so that that's a field that i think is very cool and i'm i'm very glad that um a lot of research is being done into it, but it definitely seems like it has the potential to um, open up some new fields of data that, like, we don't even think about as being, um, like, personal and private. So, long answer to your question, <laughs> but I have thought about that a lot. No, I, I agree. I think it's a super exciting field. Like, I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, you see there's there's uh, uh, technologies around, like, you know, restoring eyesight and and uh, or, uh, uh, also like hearing and you know and there is really they're just like barely scratching the surface of what could be done there. But as you mentioned, there's also potentially a lot of scary things from like a data privacy standpoint. And I think that's true of a lot of you know um, innovation that happens. Like the challenge is innovation and technology a lot of times moves much faster than things like you know regulations and compliance. Yeah. But I think. Ideally, we're we're hopefully shifting the 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 world and especially the world of engineering from an education standpoint to kind of be thinking about these things and understand that um, uh, this needs to be a priority from day one and not necessarily be like like an afterthought because you're you're too focused on essentially delivering whatever the product is um, 
because you should be doing these things because it's the right thing to do ultimately, right. not because some sort of governing body is telling you that you need to be doing it. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, awesome. Uh, thanks, uh, Piper, so much for for joining and for you know sharing your experience both from you know transitioning from neuroscience and the computer science to you know now uh, a software engineer at Skyflow and also sharing your um, you know insights around the considerations of building you know privacy-deserving data analytics pipeline and how that would work essentially with Skyflow. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This was uh, a lot of fun. <laughs> Actually, I thought it was going to be much more scary than it was. I'm glad that it wasn't too scary. Yeah. All right, thank you. All right. Thank you so much. <laughs>